everybody and welcome to another podcast. This is Rachel Paling, the creator of Neural Language Coaching, and today I'm delighted to have a lady with me who has a lot of experience in the language teaching field, Fiona Mochlin. Hello, welcome to this podcast. Hi, thank you. Um, How are you? <laughs> How are you today? <laughs> I'm fine. It's a fairly grey day, but I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine. And we actually met last week in Liverpool. How was it yes, for it you at the IATF in Liverpool? Um, I I quite enjoyed it this year. Um, that sounds like I don't usually enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> so I have quite a, I have some roles, should we say, within IATF. I'm on a couple of committees and I do some of the interviews. And I find that gives it focus from my point of view. So... I really like that. And I was presenting a, a course and speaking for other publishers. So, yeah, I, I like it. I like conferences that have a bit of a focus. Yes. So sometimes I, TEFL can be a bit overwhelming. But, um, but no, I really enjoyed Liverpool. It was a great place as well. Yes. And it was great to Good see you. Good location. Yes, absolutely. And Fiona, mm. tell our listeners yep. a little bit about your background. Um, well, I've been in ELT roughly the same length of time as the Headway course book series. Just, well, I'll let you do the maths on that one. Um, <laughs> it did not long come out when I started teaching. Uh, I started teaching in Britain, in the UK, in Windsor. I was a French teacher, um, but the school I worked in needed help with the English department, the EFL department, and somehow I got... Um, Kind of redirected into that with teenagers. Um, they were dealing with, they had some tricky teenagers and for some reason they decided I could cope with them. So I think that's probably where my professional interest in teenagers started right way back at the beginning. Um, I trained with IH, as so many of us have done. I trained to my initial certificate at IH Piccadilly, as it was then. Um, and then I did my diploma with... Um, the likes of Scott Thornbury, Neil Forrest, uh, Dave Clark, um, Kathy Ellis in Barcelona in um, in the Olympic year, actually, 1992. Mm -hmm. so, so, yes, I've been around a while. Um, let me say I've been a teacher. I was a, a DOS for a while in the Canary Islands. Um, not exactly an enviable post, as anybody who's done it knows. Um, let me see what else. I'm a materials writer and have been writing materials, writing and editing, in fact, since about 2003. Um, I had my own online magazine for a long time, uh, ELT magazine. And now, of course, I train teachers, um, not usually where I live. I live in Oxford, so I travel. Um, tomorrow I'm off to Romania. This summer I work in Devon, which is wonderful. It's like the high point of my year. But I do travel to some fascinating countries, and although I don't see too much of the actual country, um, I meet some wonderful people, and I think that's probably what I love most about our job, is that the people that we share it with. So, yeah, I think that's probably my history. Um, about the course books, resources, you know, course books like Motivate for Macmillan, and I've just brought out Dive In, for Delta Publishing, that's the teens for summer courses. Now, Fiona, you said over 30 years now in the language business. So what has changed yeah. for you in these 30-odd years? Uh, what's changed? What's stayed the same, really? Um, 
Well, put it this way, I started teaching the year after Headway was first published. So that kind of puts it in perspective. So one of the first, so one of the first major changes is a whole course book thing. Because um, course books, I mean, at the school I worked in, we had like one copy of Headway to start with. In fact, we used BBC videos to start with. Um, what was it called? Follow Me. Uh, it was all very little. I can remember that eat. one in Spain too, as well. Gosh. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, We're old enough to listen, remember repeat, that. Listen, one. repeat, stop the video, <laughs> rewind the video. Yes. And then, of course, course books were quite, um, I don't know, black and white or simple back in the day. And then suddenly we had, with Headway, there was Streamline. Um, Streamline I loved because there was hardly anything in it but pictures and, and it was fun. Um, but then, more course books have got more and more complex or convoluted, to put it another way. Yes. More and more elements, more and more bits and bobs, more and more add-on. Um, I was also started teaching before the lexical approach uh, came along as well. So, you know, that early 90s, um, the lexical approach came in. Um, Scott Thornbury kind of came on the scene as well in the early 90s. So a lot of his work, which I think has actually been significant in our sector, mm. um, I mean, dogma, love it or hate it, it certainly caused the debate. Uh, technology, of course, has also come along. Yes. I mean, it was cassette record. It was the old cassette and a pencil to rewind back in the day. <laughs> it was, you know? yes. <laughs> and nowadays, <laughs> nowadays it's augmented reality and virtual reality. And, yeah. You know, everybody's got tablets and the phone, the use of ha- the phone, I mean, you know, you know, only the Italians had fake phones you know, because nobody else had even thought of them back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> there wasn't really mobile phones. Um, so, yeah, so much has changed in technology. But I think we've already gone from one extreme in a sense and we're coming back again because one thing that's been consistent is the teacher is still, you know, one of the main players in the room and the learner. So for all the technology and all the course books that have come along in the last 30-odd years, you know, you still peel it back to the two essential elements. Right. You know, it's that in, it's the relation, for me, the rela- despite being a materials writer, for me, the relationship between the teacher and the learner is the key. I mean, yes. it's got to be. And it's not just because Hattie has become the big sort of name recently with his uh, meta, was it meta studies, meta research, but... It's all, you know, if you've got a bit of experience in this profession, that's what you see, that, mm. you know, technology, books, whatever it is, comes and goes or comes and stays, but it's still the teacher and the, right. and the learner are the main things. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I've had this many times with uh, my guests on this podcast that, you know, it's the human touch. It always comes yeah, down to the yeah. human touch. and we're more- Yeah, I mean, you can do all the research you like into technology, using technology in the classroom, um, improving course books, whatever it is. But bottom line is you need people who can teach and people who can facilitate learning, not just stand at the front of the room and spout knowledge. Right. Um, People who know how to, I don't know, I want to say open up the students. You know, some of your students are keen to learn. Brilliant. Some aren't. Yeah. But you can help them learn. So... You know, it doesn't, you know, course book can be as up to date and I don't know, it could be the perfect course book, but it still wouldn't work, I don't think, 
if the relationship between the student and the teacher didn't work. So. Right, right. And let's yeah. take it into the brain domain because what, what we're really saying is that, you know, we need somebody there who's going to help our learners to create and make those neural connections. Yeah, well, I mean, the starting point is some people are good at rapport and some aren't. I mean, you know, that is, that's not neuroscience, that's just personality. But, but that is a, a factor. Um, but if, you know, if, if a teacher wants to take a real interest in their job, I think nowadays, given the amount of information we have available to us, given where we are, with neuroscience or the capacity to study the brain through MRI scans, um, see how it works, watch it. We don't have all the information yet, but bit by bit, you know, it's coming out. Um, and just by taking an interest, following it, you know, it gives us more tools, yep. more than course books, more than technology. It gives us tools, information to work out how to best teach the students our best, help them learn best, help them remember, have a positive experience. That's another thing. Yep. Um, you know, how to avoid triggering negative emotions in the classroom. I mean, I don't know about you, but me at secondary school, I think just about every emotion that was triggered was negative. If I learned <laughs> yes. anything, well, I mean, you know, in some of my classes, um, I, I don't know, it's almost pure fluke that I learned anything at all at school. Probably thanks to my friends rather than the actual school. Sorry, that sounds awful about school, but it was not the positive place that it is nowadays. You know, right. it was dependent entirely on you know, getting nice teachers rather than teachers who knew all this stuff. See what I mean? Yeah. yeah. So nowadays, because we can know it, you know, we have access to the knowledge. I think we don't have much excuse for avoiding it. You know, I think. Mm. Nowadays, you know, if it's there, if the information's there, go out and get it, because otherwise you're not so much winging it, but, you know, you're not going the full the full hog, whatever the phrase is. <laughs> right, yes. Well, you know, it's interesting because, you know, you and I do share this sort of passion with the neuroscience. It's something that I definitely am bringing in in the training and, and you are yeah. as well. And I just want to hear your experience with this because I, I think it's great that, you know, we are creating this bridge from the scientists, from the theory into the practical application of the learning process. Yeah, well, I think we've got a slightly different take on it, or not so much take, but coming at it from slightly different angles. But, um, I mean, my thing was, having been an extremely demotivated teenager myself at school, I started to take an interest in how to motivate teenagers some years ago, thinking, well, you know, why was I so demotivated? So what would I need to be motivated? So kind of from that, across or down through the years, um, in the last five or six years, there's been a lot of interest in um, the cognitive development yeah. of the adolescent because, as we say, historically it was up to the age of 12. You know, if you look at um, Vygotsky, Brewer, Piaget, these people, they did, you know, they made massive progress in the cognitive development area. They were focusing more on the up to 12s, which is, corresponds loosely with primary in the British education system. Mm. Um, and secondary school, secondary you know, teenagers, adolescents were largely ignored, but that was partly because the concept of being an adolescent wasn't really recognised until relatively recently. 
So now, you know, people like Sarah Jane Blakemore came along and started, you know, studying the teen brain and what what makes it work, what, what parts of the teen brain are developing, what develops fully, which bits are, you know, kind of exploding, as we say, development-wise, um, and the consequences that that has or that can have on, say, for example, the social capacity or the social behaviour interaction of adolescents, um, capacity for decision-taking, rationale, etc. And once I got interested in that... Yeah. Um, you know, from there it was, okay, let's look at the brain. Well, all right, they're adolescent. Technically, our brains are adolescent until the age of roughly 27. Yeah. Um, so it's, see, you know, that, that that's not just teenagers from the ELT point of view. That's probably most of our students up to age 27. Yes. Yeah, well, post-university. So, um, so, yeah, I suppose from there is why I've expanded now looking at, because once you know... Sorry, I'm garbling here, but once you know uh, which part of the brain is developing at primary level, which at secondary adults, then the logical thing is to look at how they all connect together yeah. and how you, you as a teacher can facilitate learning, memorizing, um, positive reactions, etc. at the different ages. Um, so for me, to be honest, primary is not really my area. I have taught primary, but... I think there are a lot of you know, wonderful specialists in the primary area. I, because my own personal experience, secondary was the trouble, troublesome age. I was trouble at that age. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's where I started looking. But also, say, it coincided with the fact that it's just been massive the amount of progress in that area recently. Yes, yeah. So, yeah, and, you know, once you start looking at memory, I mean, you know this, from your side of things, this is why I mean we've come at it from different angles. Because for me, it was motivation and memory mm. being the triggers. Whereas you'd be more, you're more kind of related to the amygdala, aren't you? And yes, the, the emotional and triggers, positive yeah. and negative. Yeah, exactly. But because the memory, um, well, it, it functions via the amygdala. I mean, that's one, of, not entirely, but it's one of the parts of the brain that helps create long-term memory. So mm. inevitably, mm. you're looking at um, triggering the left amygdala more than the right because the right is the negative the left is the more positive and so on and so forth just to create better for memories as well as well as a positive experience yeah so yeah no, but fantastic. I hope that answered your question because I'm absolutely <laughs> no, absolutely, and it's great. It's great that you're really bringing this knowledge to other teachers and you know materials that are also bringing this out, and and you're really helping to spread this knowledge. Well, it's, it's quite new. I mean, this thing, you know, I'm attending lectures here of I mean, stuff that hasn't actually even been published yet or has, but, you know, internally. Um, I mean, some of the stuff I've been attending recently, part of the creative multi, multilingualism um, group of uh, lecturers here um, who are studying like the effect of metaphorical language on the brain. And when you use metaphorical language, which part of your brain triggers. And it's curious because it's a similar part of brain um, to memory because it's all connected via senses. Yeah. Um, so again, you know, I'm sitting there thinking, wow, this is, this is really useful because it, it helps me sort of realize how we can trigger memory or learning in the classroom by triggering the senses. 
yeah. but you can trigger the senses without needing to smell something. You know, you can imagine. I've been doing a lot of work recently, getting people to imagine stuff, visualize, imagine this, imagine that, yeah. and then seeing what vocabulary comes and how it generates vocabulary, and also how it creates a more positive, sort of relaxed learning environment. Um, mm. And also, you know, the, the sort of the Vygotsky thing of um, the what is it? The, the stimulus. If you choose your stimulus, all right. Stimulus is a bridge. No, language is one of the bridges between stimulus and uh, expression, I think it's probably a completeness quote, but it is. <laughs> that if the stimulus, um, should we say, excites you enough, you want to talk about it, and therefore you need the language. Yeah. So, you know, when something is either amazing, fantastic, disgusting, scary, whatever it is. So, yeah, so it's a case of, um, you know, theoretically, yeah, we know that, but we knew that or we knew it intuitively or from observation, but now we know it scientifically. Yes. We also know which part of the brain is triggered and therefore what else it will trigger. Yes. You see what I mean? Yes, absolutely. Oh, so, yeah. Yeah. And, so, yeah, so this is what I'm putting in my work at the moment. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and you're so right. You know, a lot of the um, psychology, a lot of the sort of educational psychology that we had before is now being reconfirmed and, let's say, reaffirmed with yeah, exactly, what we're yeah. actually seeing in the brain from this neuroscientific side. And I think it's also helping to even go beyond what we knew before into the practical yeah, realms. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the stuff that we knew from observation, it's like, okay, I know that if I put um, a, piece, a piece of stinky goat's cheese in front of your nose, you're going to go, yeah, or something. You're going to make a noise. You're going to say something. You're going to, you know, you're likely to say, oh, that's horrible, or, oh, I love that stuff, or something, you know. But I also now know from, you know, observing MRI scans, as well as, as, provoking, should we say, a verbal reaction, it's also triggering your memory. Yeah. The, you know, it's actually the memory of that smell, the, amyg- the amygdala's being triggered, uh, the caudate nucleus is being triggered, yeah. uh, probably the hippocampus because you're holding the thing, you know. Yeah. There's a whole lot of things. So it's not just intuition now, it's informed um, knowledge that I can then use in a particular way because I know what else it's connected to. Yes. I know what else is happening in the brain. Yes. So, yeah. yes, yes. I think it's massive. I think, you know, of all the changes in the last 30 years, I think this is one of the biggest. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I was going to say it goes beyond technology. No, it doesn't really, because it is a result of technology. Without the technology, we wouldn't have this knowledge. But mm. it's certainly up there from our side, of, you know, from the teaching yes. point of view. Yeah. So how do you see the future then of teaching languages? Um, well, it's hard to say because we're, it's a slightly odd profession, or maybe they're all the same. I just only know this one from the inside. Because you've got the people who take it seriously. You've got you know the diploma, as it was in my day, the Delta nowadays. You've got a lot of MAs coming through. Um, I would think that or that, that side of the profession certainly will have a lot more information to hand. You know, we won't just be reading um, Harmer and Penier and Scott Thornberry. We'll be reading Abu Talebi and Blakemore as well, you know, the neuroscientists. Yes. Um, uh, I don't know, Vygotsky and Piazhenko come into MAs quite a lot, but they don't come into the lower level. 
qualification as the South End the Delta. Um, but maybe they will because we'll see actually we need proper teaching grounding at that level, not just the sort of how to teach the present perfect. Um, but then, of course, it's a profession that there's a big part of it, a big sector. Uh, obviously, not you and me, or we wouldn't be having this conversation, but um, it's all bums on seats and business. So, yeah. I don't know. I think you could end up slightly fracturing. You know, you'll still have the you know, sort of slightly more cowboy side of things. Um, but then the quality, the quality teaching, I think, will probably be more outstanding, shall we say, it'll be more noticeable. Um, but it's always t- tricky to, pr- to try and predict the future because then the end, that's what I said, you know, 30 years ago I came in, I've seen all this stuff come and go and, and at the end of the day it's actually quite similar. Um, we probably do different things in the classroom. I certainly cut up an awful lot fewer bits of paper, you know, passing <laughs> out little pieces of yes, paper, you know, that out. kind of stuff. But it's, <laughs> it's minor tweaks. So I think it's this knowledge it comes through. Um, hopefully, ultimately, it will make better teachers. But uh, it's hard, to, you know. Big predictions. I don't think we can do that. It's not going to be Sugata Mitra and his yeah. hole in the wall computer teachers, and it's not going to be this granular. What do you call it? Adaptive or whatever it is. Learning, you know, the sort of blendedy stuff. And even the flipped class. I think it'll be the same as it's always been. Everybody'll pick and choose and pick and choose. But we'll just have more tools. Right. We'll have more augmented reality and more virtual reality. But I think in knowledge, and this is going to be the biggie, I think, you know, actually being a teacher, and hopefully being an ELT teacher will mean more. Yes. Because there's still that feeling of uh, it's not a real job. You yes. know, so hopefully. Yep, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, I could go off and around about that, about how much we're paid. <laughs> yes, no, but it, it is. It, it is bringing back sort of that passion and um, joy of being uh, a language professional and being respected and paid for it correspondingly, you know? Well, exactly. No, but I think the future, you know, if we play our cards right, effectively, you know, if we, if we stop messing about with cowboy schools and, you know, I don't know, Slightly, you know, these sort of wacky teaching things about learning language in 100 days or whatever it is. <laughs> if, we, if we can manage to sideline all that stuff, we could actually end up being becoming a proper, well, we are a proper profession, <laughs> yes. but I mean, you know, no, but I know what taken you mean. seriously, respected. Yes. Um, because, I mean, there's enough of us in this business who do take it seriously and who yeah. do do the work. Yes. Know, don't just. I don't know. Don't just do what I was doing thirty years ago. Yes. Well, I think you and you and I must have been next door to each other in Spain without us realizing it. I know. I know. All those yeah, years ago. Gosh. Gosh. I know. Wow, Fiona. Honestly, it's been... uh, yeah. So the future. I don't know. Ask me in another thirty years. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll leave it at that. Some some great insights there, and I do think you're right. The key word that's come out for me there is knowledge. Knowledge, yeah, yeah, knowledge. And, of course, it'll increase and increase and increase. I mean, yes. we're just starting on this MRI scan. We and are. And stuff. And there'll, there'll be new stuff, more information, more and more and more. Goodness, and even we're implants. We're just scratching the surface at the moment. So we really will have no excuse in the future. <laughs> right, that's right, that's right. To get inside our brains, to understand them, and, and hopefully, hopefully keep the implants at bay. 
Um, yeah, exactly. Well, not just our brains, though. I mean, all kinds of brains, because there are all kinds of brains. There's the brains of uh, sight-impaired people, and there's the brains of um, deaf people, and the brains of dyslexic people, and Absolutely. the brains of... You know, there's all kinds of brains out there. We need yeah. to also work out the best way to maximise everybody's potential. If, you know, if if people want to have their yes. potential maximised. But, you know, somehow also get to the stage where essentially we all have the same possibilities. Yeah. I mean, that takes us into a whole socioeconomic um, area. But I mean, you know, at least at physical level. Mm. That nobody's, um, should we say, physical conditions uh, condition their learning capacity. You know, that we have enough knowledge to teach everybody efficiently, effectively. Yeah. Yeah. What a wonderful That's what I hope. what a wonderful <laughs> way to end this podcast. Fiona, absolutely delighted. Thank you so much. Uh, lots of uh, I think words of wisdom and lots of experience there. Um so thank you thank for you. being here today. Thank you for having me. <laughs> and just to say to uh, our listeners, thank you to and I do hope you enjoyed um, my little chat there with Fiona. And join me next time on my podcast. Bye-bye.